Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Did you know that the situational difficulties that we face are the context that reveal our hearts, which is how God purifies our faith and obedience? These personal, relational, and situational challenges are our opportunities to follow Jesus in the Christian's call to suffer. Paul discussed it as boasting in his weakness. But what does that mean? What I would like to do over the next few moments is to take you on a journey through the New Testament, laying out how God chooses life's foolish and weak things to confound the wise. Every dinged and dented jar of clay that God uses understands this boasting in weakness worldview. But for many of our brothers and sisters, it continues to be a mental challenge to shift from their former manner of life. We all have a former manner of life, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 4.22, and we bring that life into our Christian experience. And he told us in verse 23 that we are to renew our minds and put on Christ. Well, part of that former manner of life It has an understanding of how the culture works and how it operates. And of course, it imbibes in the self-esteem culture where we esteem ourselves, we, we build ourselves up, we climb the corporate ladder, and it is about power, and we have language, uh, we have language for it, like we got to get the win and, and so forth. And so it's about strength, it's about wisdom, it's about being the self-sufficient, self-reliant individual, and all of that stuff is biblical nonsense. All of that stuff is part of our former manner of life. But depending on how long you've been living in the world and been part of the world as I was for 25 years, well, I brought all that garbage into my Christian experience, and it took me a long time to understand this profound sentence that I led with. The situational difficulties we face are the context that reveal our hearts, which is how God purifies our faith and obedience. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas at lifeovercoffee.com. That is our website. It is our sanctification center. It is our big box store in cyberspace. I would love for you to come over to our coffee shop. We have thousands upon thousands of free resources, millions of words, literally, and they're all yours. You can use them, benefit uh, from them, And of course, I want you to share them with 1,000 of your closest friends. I want you to engage your friends and have conversations for transformation, and that is our, our tagline. We exist to bring hope and help to you and others by sparking these conversations. We create these resources that spark conversation for transformation, and I have a resource for you right now. It's an article that I want to share with you, and the title of it is, Why Does God Call Us to Suffer? It is a profound 
question that we all need to ask, and we need a thorough biblical understanding and answer to that question, and I trust that this will get the ball rolling. I trust that this will help you. And so go to our website, lifeovercoffee.com. Look for this article, Why Does God Call Us to Suffer? I'm going to work through it right now, but you can read the article all of the embedded links, there are a lot of them there. You can print it out. At the very bottom, there is a print feature. And then there is a podcast. I'm building it right here, right now. There is a video that I'm, I'm producing right now. And so you can read, watch, and listen. Again, the title of it is, Why Does God Call Us to Suffer? And let's jump right into it. Now, a call to suffer does not bode well in our evangelistic endeavors. Let's say that you you go out and, and you're knocking on doors or uh, you're looking for people that you can share the gospel with. You want to tell them about Christ. And like what Jesus was doing in John 3 as he was talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so you make the appeal and you hoping that, that God would just intrude himself into their life and would wake them up from uh, death and, and give them the gift of faith and regeneration. And God grants that repentance to them, and they are born again into the family of God. Well, there's something that you need to walk them through somewhat quickly. It is vital to inform all of those interested in the gospel that there are two, not one, there are two gifts that God gives each person at the point of regeneration. When you are born again, that is a beautiful gift that God gives you, but there are two packages under the Christmas tree. And we love that first blessed package. We unwrap it and we are born again. He has brought us into his family. He has made us born again. And then we look under the tree and we say, what is that second package there? It is the gift of suffering. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe gift number one, salvation, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, gift number two, the gift of suffering. This second gift can be such a problem in the believer's life that it hinders their growth in Christ, and I am exhibit A. I could read those scriptures like this one, Philippians uh, 129, and I can yes and amen it. I could memorize it. I could hide it in my heart. I could tick that box. But when I was ushered into the crucible of suffering, that's a whole other world. Uh, believing in Christ is essential, but there is a functional, practical application that should flow out of that belief. And I, I fear that too many of our brothers and sisters will tell you that they believe in Christ, but we can act like functional atheists when the suffering comes into our lives. And part of the reason why is because we do not have a sound theology of suffering. And so this second gift of suffering 
It is such a problem in the believer's life that it does hinder our growth, and it hindered mine. The average believer has an inadequate theology of suffering, and if you ask them about it, they might stammer to articulate the query while quizzically staring as they wrestle with the terminology. Like, what do you mean, a theology of suffering? I'm not familiar with the language. I would not know how to articulate what it means. And here's the irony. Suffering is not to make our lives miserable. Suffering is to teach us to trust the Lord rather than to rely on ourselves. Self-reliance is a form of unbelief, and it is our biggest nemesis. We see self-reliance in the initial moments right after Adam and Eve fell into sin. They began to rely on themselves. What did they do? They put on fig leaves, a self-reliant methodology to hide their shame. They began to run because they were afraid, as Adam would say later, that I I heard you, and so I took off a running. We blame our circumstances on other people. That is a self-reliant tactic not to own our own sin, to step into our own responsibility. Self-reliance is a form of unbelief, and it is without question our biggest nemesis. And so God, in his mercy to us, He allows suffering into our lives to teach us how to obey. In Hebrews 5, 8, it says this, Although he was a son, talking about Jesus Christ, though Jesus Christ was a son, he learned obedience. How? Through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so we see a linkage here. Even though he was a son, obedience came through suffering. And through that suffering, there was perfection. And from that perfection, salvation was manifest, was provided for anyone, to all who obey him. Now, we're not going to be saving people, and I'm not suggesting that, but there is a parallel, lower-level application to that verse there, Hebrews 5, 8, into our lives. Though we are sons and daughters of Christ, we learn obedience through what we suffer, and we are being made perfect, and we become a source of, of restoration and a redemptive call that we make to other people. God uses broken, fragile clay pots because that is what he puts his power in. And out of that brokenness comes the power of God that impacts many lives. And this is part of what we see in this passage in Hebrews 5, 8. And then Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Do not misinterpret our suffering. If you, mis- if you misinterpret our suffering, you could probably go empathetic on me and say, oh, my poor brother Paul, this should not have happened to you and those people in Asia. They should not have done that. And oh, no, don't be unaware. 
Don't be ignorant of the suffering that happened to us in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. And that is a key phrase there, beyond our strength, self-reliance. God is pushing us beyond our ability to rectify the situation. Do you know sometimes God would put you in such a place that you can't fix it? You can't rely on yourself, and that is where He wants us. He is incrementally putting us us to death. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of that, my brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now that is really beyond your strength to where it is like, I just want to die. In fact, he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And in a way that is true, spiritually speaking, God was incrementally putting them to death. And Paul tells us why. And this is what he does not want us to be ignorant of. He says, here's the great conjunction, but... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead. God has to bring suffering into our lives to break us from our self-reliance, to put us in a, a place of weakness and vulnerability uh, so that his power could be manifest through us. This anti-modern message that promotes weakness as the pathway to power teaches us to die to ourselves. It is one of the primary means of grace the Lord provides to create an otherworldly reliance on the only legitimate superpower. Though the message of death is unnerving at first glance, and it should be if you are a normal human being, there are many biblical precedents, including God's intentional crushing of His Son, as we learn in Isaiah. Here's another verse of Scripture, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him, to put Him to grief. The gospel is the most profound picture of the very thing that I am articulating to you through the weakness and foolishness of Christ hanging on Adam's tree, the power of God was displayed and it has been impacting the world for 2,000 years. And the apostles stumbled all over it. Peter rebuked the Lord in Mark chapter 8. This cannot be. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 1 where he said the weakness of God is stronger than men and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The gospel message cuts against Against the grain of proud hearts, and it is counterintuitive to how we normally think. And Isaiah was communicating this through the brokenness of Christ, the death of Christ, the weakness of Christ, the vulnerability of Christ, through the suffering of Christ, the world has the opportunity to be redeemed. Occasionally, someone will ask me to help them to understand God's call on their life. I don't know the answer to that. In totality, uh, I would not have the mind of the Lord for them as far as what God has called them to do. But there's one thing I do know about their calling. I do know that God has called every Christian to suffer, and Peter could not be more explicit about this matter. Let me take you over 
to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to share with you verses 18 through 21, and, and you, you will pick up what I am putting down. You will be able to, to see very clearly that every brother and sister in Christ is called to suffer. Peter said, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering while one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and, and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. By the way, this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks in my Christian faith, because when God ushered me into the crucible of suffering uh, in 1988, the most difficult time of my life, which I have talked about a lot uh, within this ministry at Life Over Coffee, uh, com, so I won't go through all that now, but I, I will say this, that I was doing good in the sense that I was in Bible college. I was minding my own business. I was trying to uh, learn the Bible. I was working on a theology degree. I had intentions of being a pastor sometime in the future. I, I, I was not perfect, but I was innocent and genuinely trying to do the right thing. And it was like all hell was just unleashed on me. And and it, it really just confounded me. It discombobulated me to the point to where I became bitter and angry at God because I did not endure. And it's this sentence right here that Peter is saying, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I could not get my mind around that because I was trying to do the right thing and the shoe just fell. It's like, are you kidding me? The shoe had been falling all my life. It was just one thing right after another, and I become a Christian, and I thought the pathway would just be marvelous from that point forward. I did not understand that there were two gifts under the Christmas tree. And so I did not endure well, but I had to wrestle with the very passage that I'm sharing with you, and the next sentence says this, "'For to this you have been called.'" Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 21. If we are to walk in the steps of Jesus, well, then the question becomes, what are those steps? What did Jesus do? Well, Peter continues to talk about that. He, he explains, he articulated the steps of the Savior in this passage as he lays out our calling. For example, he says that Jesus Christ did not sin. He said there was no deceit in his mouth. He said that when individuals reviled him, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He always entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter wraps it up by saying, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like a sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Those are the steps of Jesus. 
That is what he did. That is the example. What would Jesus do? That is what Jesus did, and we are to walk in his steps. Now, granted, we're not going to save anyone as Jesus does, but God does call us to walk in his steps, which anyone can see. That is a path of suffering. But then the quick-thinking believer will say, but he was Jesus, and I am not him. I've seen that several times on social media, the impulsive keyboard warrior. If I were to say anything like what I'm saying now, uh, somebody will say inevitably, that was Jesus, and, and I'm not him. Well, first of all, you don't understand the hypostatic union. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He wasn't 98% man and 2% God in his humanity, as though he was a superman. No, he was like us. If he was a superman, if he was not 100% man, uh, then that would defile and negate what he did on the cross. No, he was 100% man. The theological term, again, is the hypostatic union. So yeah, he he's Jesus, and I'm not him. True enough, uh, you're not him, and neither am I. But the good news is that God has given us a backup plan when we fail to hit the high mark of suffering like Jesus did. And we will fail. John talked about it this way. You can confess those failures. You can repent of those sins and God will forgive you of those sins. And you can get back on the death march of walking in the steps of Jesus. Only Christians can repent making it one of our high-powered secret weapons. Imagine a way to clean up your messes. So yeah, you're going to fail. You're not going to be like Jesus 100% of the time, 10 out of 10, every day of the week throughout the year. That's okay. And for those of you listening to the podcast, I put okay in air quotes. Obviously, it's not okay to sin, but we know that we will. But we can confess that, we can clean up our messes, we can be right with God, be right with others, and we can keep on suffering just the way Jesus did. Now, here's the interesting thing about this passage that I've been sharing with you uh, in First Peter. I just finished chapter number 2. It, it, it ends at verse 25. And so that's Peter's suffering passage there that I just shared with you, 18 through 25 in chapter 2. And that passage is situated just before a, a marriage passage. And, and so the next page or the next chapter, chapter 3, verse number 1, Jesus, uh, Peter joins those two passages together. He joins the suffering passage and the marriage passage, and you can see it joined with the conjunction, likewise. Likewise is a conjunction that joins two thoughts, and so this marriage passage that he's going to roll into in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it is connected. It flows right out of the suffering passage. Now, how cool is that? His point is clear. If you don't have a correct view of suffering, then you can't live well with your spouse. If you don't have a correct view of suffering, you can't live well with anyone. Without a sound theology of suffering, you will likely sin against your spouse the first time they do not meet your expectation. And for all of us who have been married longer than 30 seconds, we know that is true. A sinful response to a failing spouse is the exact opposite 
of how Christ responds to us when we fail. John 3.16 is an illustration of that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Romans eight, uh, Romans 5, verse number 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I can't overstate the need for sound theology and the application of suffering. And so here's what it says. Here's what it rolls into in Peter's passage. He's, he gives us how to walk in the steps of Jesus in this suffering passage. And then he says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I'm not this what I'm sharing with you is not a marriage or a marriage article, and so I'm not going to work through this passage. I just want you to see the conjunction likewise that's connected to what he said about suffering. And by the way, verse number seven starts with a conjunction. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers not be hindered. First Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7, there's a message there for the wife, there's a message there for the husband, and those two messages are connected to our call to suffer and to walk in the steps of Jesus. Could it be? like Paul, that the good Lord brings specific individuals or circumstances into our lives so that we can learn obedience. We can learn the obedience that the Hebrew writer talked about in 5.8, where he said he learned obedience through what he suffered. Learning obedience was without question the purpose of Paul's suffering. God brought suffering into Paul's life to teach him to obey, to put him on the right path. And this is what he was saying in 2 Corinthians, as I shared with you earlier, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. We were burdened beyond our strength, but God was teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. And if you go to the end of 2 Corinthians, and if you go to chapter 12, you will hear Paul saying these words that many of you are familiar with. He said, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He said it twice there that my temptation is to become proud. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Dear God, please take this suffering from me. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The title of this is, Why Does God Call Us to Suffer? Because He loves us. He wants to use us. He wants us to be ambassadors for Christ. But the only way that He can use us is to fill us with His power power, but that vessel, that container, that jar of clay that he fills has to be an empty jar of clay, a weak, vulnerable, fragile jar of clay. 
And so God is telling Paul this. Listen, I know that you want this thorn removed, but this suffering is in your life so that you can be emptied of all your self-reliance so I can fill you with my power so that you will have usefulness in this world. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And here's the transition. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why, Paul? Why are you going to boast in your weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me? For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And right here, this last sentence in 2 Corinthians, verse number 10, I think this is the key to life. This is the secret to life. It is just full. It is just penetrated with, with the gospel narrative. In this short sentence, Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And so Paul assumed the position of weakness. He understood the point of weakness. He did not want you to be ignorant of the affliction that he was going through in Asia because God was doing a work that was beyond what people were, were interpreting his suffering to be. And so he wanted to set the record straight. Do not be ignorant. God is breaking me, emptying me, bringing me down to fragility bringing me down to vulnerability, bringing me down to a place of weakness so that he could fill me with his power and his grace is sufficient for this because here's the key. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned the secret of life when he said that his weakness was the condition that brought God's strength to him and out of him, which helps us to understand why he was boasting in his weakness. Vulnerability and fragility are not something to resist because God will only place his surpassing power in such fragile clay vessels. And so the question for us to entertain is whether we want to assume the position of weakness, vulnerability, and fragility to experience the wonder-working power of God operating in and through us. I have titled this, Why Does God Call Us to Suffer? Let me wrap up. I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, here's your CTA, and I trust that it will help you. Uh, your call to action, that it will help you as you work through. And I hope that you'll have a conversation for transformation with someone about what you have just read, uh, listened to, or watched. So question number one, how would you describe your practical understanding of suffering? I'm calling it a theology of suffering. Based on what you have heard here, would you share your view of suffering with a friend? Would you be willing to have that conversation with a friend? Number two, do you need to change your view of suffering so that you can learn obedience through your relational or situational challenges? And if so, what is your specific and practical plan to start that process? Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, and we want to learn to obey through our suffering as well. And so as you diagnose the relational and situational challenges in your life, would you say like Paul, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant of what I'm going through here. God is teaching me something. And so what is he teaching you? Would you share those things with a friend? And if there's, if there's room to grow, if there's room for improvement, what is your specific and practical plan to begin that process of transformation? 
And then number three, have you found strength in your weakness like Paul? Or do you resist the weakness that suffering brings into our lives? And the question is, what does your answer reveal about you and God? If there is something you should address, will you create a transformation plan? And then finally, number four, will you share with a friend your thoughts about boasting in your weakness? What does that phrase mean? How does it encourage you? What does it reveal about God's method for empowering His children? Again, the title of this, what does, uh, Why Does God Call Us to Suffer? You can read all about it. You can listen. You can watch at lifeovercoffee.com. Please check out all of our other resources. We have thousands of them. We drop resources every week uh, in our coffee shop, and so I just want you to keep coming by and checking them out. Use them and then share them with your friends. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.